you turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 31. Woo, I'm touching a really intense uh, area. I think most women feel guilty when they read this chapter. It just seems like it's beyond most people. So I want to talk a little bit about what did the Hebrew writers have in mind when they gave us this incredible poem. And I'm going to talk about that this morning. I love the story. I love Calvin Miller. Calvin Miller is a pastor. He's an author. He's written some interesting things. And he shares the story about what it was like growing up in the Great Depression and his mother. And he says this, all the important turning points in my life, my mother was there teaching me lessons that moved me towards God's best for my life. Somehow at each place, my mother revealed her wisdom in proverbial form, sometimes from the Bible, sometimes from life. He said, we grew up very poor on the poor side of the town, and yet there were some of the kids that had shoes and some that didn't. This was during the 1930s, Great Depression. No credit, no money, no work. People just eking out survival. He said, my mother worked so hard, raised my eight brothers and sisters, so there was nine children. Through her, though her resources were meager, she was an excellent financial manager. You see, our father had abandoned us when the last of the children were in preschool. So with money and short supply, so were shoes. I complained one night about not having shoes, knowing mother would have certainly given them to me if she had them. But since she couldn't, she gave me something even better, a proverb. She said, I wept because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. You know, that's pretty heady stuff for a six-year-old to take in. But what my mother was incalculating in my soul was simply this. Instead of focusing on what I did not have, she wanted me to focus in on what I did have and to value and appreciate what I had. How many think just learning that one lesson today could literally change your life? So many of us are locked into what we do not have and we make ourselves miserable rather than valuing and appreciating the things that God has brought into our lives and be thankful for them. Now, Mother didn't drive. We couldn't afford a car anyway, so we Millers were walkers. And like most 15-year-olds, having a car became a passion with me. And so I saved up my money, got my driver's license, borrowed a friend's car, passed the test. And on my 16th birthday, I had saved $300. I drove a friend's car when I took my license, and I walked to the used car lot with a wad of $15, $20 bills. And I was there to buy a 1939 Plymouth Coupe convertible with a rumble seat. You see, in 1952, you could buy a 1952 Plymouth for $1,000. Man, isn't that amazing? How many go, wouldn't that be awesome to buy a brand new car for 1000 bucks today? That's called inflation, guys. But that 39 Coupe, it was so cool, looked so good, but it wasn't as good as it looked. It had a lot of miles, and the starter was gone, and the brakes didn't work. Since I had spent my entire wad purchasing it, I had no money left to repair, insure, or maintain it. My mother was so unimpressed when I drove up our unpaved driveway. I stopped the car, smiled pr proudly, and I killed the engine. Just as I remembered, I wouldn't be able to start it again. I said, you want to go for a ride? How much did it cost? Listen, Mama, you got to know all these amazing features on this car. I began to try to persuade her to go for a ride. Finally, she jumped in the car. I hit the ignition. Nothing happened. 
Mom, would you mind helping me push it down the drive? It starts with only the tiniest push. Patty, you and I can relate to this. She got out of the car and we pushed it along until we were going about five miles an hour and then I jumped in and kicked in the clutch and it started just as, if, just as I said it would. See there, I said, as she straightened up from her two hands on the back bumper AAA towing position. She walked around the car, got in, and we roared off until we got to the 10th Street stop sign where the pavement met. I stomped on the brakes, crimped the wheels, spun onto the street as the stop sign whizzed by like an octagonal encouragement to speed me onward. You can't stop this car, my mother screamed at me. It's the brakes, I think, I said. Let me out now. As soon as the car came to a level place, I rolled it to a stop. Mom got out. We're taking this back to the dealer and getting your money back. Why? Don't you like it? You can't start it and you can't stop it and you have no money to fix it. We're getting our money back. Well, we can't do that, Mom. I argued it. A deal's a deal. Oh, no. Watch me. I did watch, and I discovered her to be a little woman of considerable strength. Like God at Judgment Day, she wagged her finger in the face of that used car salesman and shouted, how would you like to explain to the county attorney how you took the entire savings of a minor for a piece of junk that won't start and won't stop? He got her point. I got my money. <laughs> Son, she began, if you have only two cents, spend one for bread and the other to buy a flower for your soul. I kind of got the drift. I'd spent everything I had on what I wanted and a pleasurable thing and not on necessity. Together we, sh we car shopped and I purchased a 37 Chevy for 35 bucks. The car had no class, but it did have a starter and brakes. <laughs> My mother's opinion meant so much to me that I introduced her to every prospective marriage partner and then I brought Barbara home. One look at Barbara and my mother said, that's the one. How do you know, Mom? Look at how she loves you. Son, I've learned, I've loved you for 23 years. You're creative and artistic, and believe me, you're going to take a lot of special understanding. <laughs> Every poet needs a pragmatist to keep his feet on solid ground. Now, don't you, you know, I, I just love Calvin Miller's authentic, authentic rendition of his affirmation and appreciation for his mother. And you know, some of us probably would long for such kind of love or thankfulness. Maybe some of you had that kind of a mother. And I recognize this may not have been your experience, but it can be your legacy. You see, if you and I didn't grow up in that kind of a context, you and I can create that kind of a context. You and I can become that kind of a loving, wise mother. And... I believe that that's what God is trying to call us to do. Now, you could easily tune out a Mother's Day message saying, I'm so, oh, thank you, Pastor. Deal with those ladies, please. And you're thinking, it's not going to apply to me. But let me just point out a couple of thoughts. First of all, if you're ever planning on getting married, you better pay special attention. Just remember that the girl you marry is going to be the mother of your children someday. I may think that's kind of important. You know, and I want to just take a moment here to just say that, you know, Patty, you have been an amazing mom, and you have been an amazing grandmother, and I'm, you know what? When you marry the right kind of a girl, you get a lot of amazings. Amen. That's what happens. Amen. 
And if you're a young lady today, listen carefully. Motherhood is a great responsibility. You're shaping the life of a person. Can you imagine what is God doing? He's entrusting you with the greatest gift. Now, I want to just say this for all of us. You know, children don't belong to us. They, we, they, we're stewarding a gift that God gave to us, and we have them for a short period of time to invest into their lives, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. We don't know. But I'm going to say this. Maybe even you're here today, and you go, well, I don't have any children, Pastor. Maybe I'll never have any children. Can I just say that that doesn't opt you out of hearing this message because I believe God's calling us to all be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. We're all called to make disciples. And that's really what discipleship is all about, is mentoring, nurturing, encouraging, parenting, just like a parent does to their biological children. So we can learn from this message today. You say, well, to the fathers who are wiping the sweat off your brows thinking, I'll just kick back, this doesn't apply to me. Can I just tell you that if you're not the right kind of a husband, you're not gonna help foster and nurture and support and help create the right kind of a wife. It's the truth. And so I'm gonna just say that I think we all need to listen to this and learn what it means to be a wise person because I'm gonna actually interchange a concept for you. I'm not just talking about being a godly person. You see, in the book of Proverbs, there's only two groups of people. You're either wise or you're foolish. You're either walking in wisdom or you're walking in folly. You're either a godly person or you become an ungodly person. And it has a lot to do with the choices you and I make. Now, I believe wisdom is a gift, but it's also a skill that's acquired and learned. And as you and I begin to learn about who God is and we begin to respond in obedience to him, we can actually start walking in wisdom. And that is a very powerful thing. So I'm gonna take a look at this amazing poem that's found in chapter 31, beginning at verse 10, all the way down to verse 31. And there's actually 22 verses. And do you know how many letters in the alphabet there are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. And isn't it interesting that every verse starts with the next letter? Aleph, Beth, those are all letters of the alphabet. A, B, Aleph, Beth, See, they're going down in order. So this was designed as an acrostic for you and I to remember these verses, or at least the Hebrew people to remember these verses. And they're describing, actually, a woman of valor, a woman of wisdom. Now, what is really fascinating, maybe you women didn't know this, but in the Old Testament, wisdom is a woman. Isn't that interesting? How many knew that? Women? Uh, wisdom is a woman. As a matter of fact, because of the nature of the Hebrew language, it's in the feminine. And that's why we talk about lady wisdom. And women are very wise. But before you get too high on yourself, I have to caution you. There's also another woman portrayed in the book of Proverbs, and that's Lady Folly. And so there's two groups of people we're going to be looking at. And so we have to make a choice. Which group do I want to end up being like? And so here's the good news. When you and I become like Lady Wisdom, what we're really becoming like is Yahweh. We're actually becoming like God. We're becoming a godly person. Isn't that beautiful? And so wisdom is actually learning to become like God. And that's what I want us to focus in on today. So let's take a look here at this inc incredible, what they would call a, um, a heroic poem. 
I'll just say one more remark before I get right down to the virtues there. Do you realize that this, in this heroic poem, it's almost like one that's found in Psalm 112 where we have a heroic poem describing all the attributes of God. Excuse me, here in Proverbs 31, we have this heroic poem describing the attributes of a wise woman. Now, this is an idea. We have to understand that. This is something that we're saying, God, by your grace, I want to aspire to be living up to wisdom. I want to walk and live in wisdom. So what does it look like? What does it look like to be a wise woman? Well, verse 10, it says this, who can find a virtuous and capable wife? Already we have the question raised, not everybody fits this category. Not everybody aspires to this. Not everybody's going to live like this. And this is the kind of woman every young man should be looking for, when you think about it. Actually, when you study Proverbs, what you're going to find out is there's a father and a mother talking to their son and warning them about the pitfalls in life and the things that they should be pursuing. And they're also telling them which kind of woman to get married to. And this is it. Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. So right then, it says to me that when we have a godly wife or a godly mother, we should treat them with deep value. Because, you know, when you have precious stones and they have, you know, a lot of value to it, you don't just go, oh, I got a diamond necklace. I just throw it here and throw it there and forget what I did with it. You don't treat valuable things like that. Well, that's what he's saying here. We have to treat these individuals with great value. Verse verse, uh, 11 says, her husband can trust her and she will greatly enrich his life. In other words, he trusts in her ability to make the most with what they have. This is not about being wealthy, folks. This is about valuing what this person's bringing to the relationship. Verse 12, she brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. Isn't that a great statement, you know? Some people say, well, I, you know, I didn't make a good choice. And I married someone that's very difficult. Well, then you're going to become a great saint. <laughs> that's what will happen. You will have to learn to love a difficult person. See, we don't think this way. A culture doesn't tell us to do that, but the scriptures teach us to do that. So I'm saying to you, especially if you're single right now, you better have a lot of wisdom in who you're selecting as a marriage partner. You know, Patty said to me, you know how I picked you? I said, I have no idea. She said, I watched the way you treated your family. And she said, I knew that the way you treated your sister and your mother was the way I would, I would one day be treated. And I saw that you loved and valued them. And I knew you would love and value me. You think that's important? So I'm giving you some practical tips here. Are you guys paying attention to this? If I was a young woman, I'd go, take a look at how he, this young man is treating his family. Because if he loves them and honors them and does good by them, he's going to do that for you. Because that's how he's going to treat his family. But if he speaks evil of them and has disregard for them, he's going to do the same to you, which is really sad. Uh, David Hubbard said, it's, it is what she does. Uh, it is not a sporadic temporary deed of kindness, but a consistent way of life. So we're not talking about somebody who can pretend for a little while. We're talking about somebody, this is the way they live. So how important is it to find this wise or godly wife? Very important. How many know marriage is a long journey? So you better make sure that you don't get the uh, 39 coupe with the rumble seat that has no brakes and starter, right? I mean, you, you just better figure this out in a hurry that you're going to have to make a good decision. Listen to what it says. Women whom we marry, guys, 
have a profound impact in our lives. Matter of fact, Proverbs says, a worthy wife is a crown for her husband, but a disgraceful woman is like cancer in his bones. How many of you, that's pretty harsh. Is that harsh? Isn't that, isn't that, that's, a, that's a telling statement. In other words, that's gonna create a lot of havoc inside of your life. So I'm saying, be wise. That's why I always told my daughters, don't, you know, marry a Christian. Very important. Let me just talk about these four general qualities that describe the wise woman. And I'm going to just summarize these qualities. The first one is described as her diligence. She's not lazy. She's hard. She works hard on behalf of others, and particularly her family. It starts with your family. Can I just say this? If you're neglecting your family and working hard for everybody else, even as a husband, you're missing the point. It always starts with your family and you work your way out, okay? You know, that's how it works. Even as a pastor, I start with my family and I work my way towards the congregation. You, ca you can't be all things to all people. That's humanly impossible. Notice what it says here. She's the opposite of the sluggard or the lazy person described in Proverbs 6, 9, and 10 in verse chapter 20 and verse 13. Here it says in verse 31, 13, she finds wool and flax and busily spins it. Okay, now what's, what's the difference between wool and flax? Wool is generally worn in colder times, and flax is a lighter material worn in a warmer time. What is this suggesting to you? That she's actually making provision for both seasons of life. She's actually thinking ahead. She's not living just in the moment. She's making sure there's provisions for the future. That's what it's telling us. She's like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to prepare breakfast for her household and plans the day's work for her servant girls. Some of you ladies are thinking, oh, if I could only have servants, wouldn't that be awesome, you know? But let me just remind you, you actually do, and you haven't thought about it this way. I remember years ago taking a course with Dr. Bruce Walke, who's a phenomenal Bible teacher, he's written commentaries and everything else, and he said in class one day, he said, the modern equivalent of serving girls is your dishwasher, your washer and dryer, Right? How many know they're saving you a lot of work? You would have to go out and scrub all that by hand, but right now you can just throw some clothes in the washing machine, turn her on, and walk away, right? That's your servant girl doing her work. I always like it when Patty says, I got all my servants working today. And what she's telling me is I got the laundry going and the dishes are being cleaned in the dishwasher. She's got her servant girls going. And that's what it's telling you. You're actually managing your household. It goes on here to say in verse uh, 16, she goes to inspect a field and buys it. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's energetic and a strong, hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamp burns late into the night. Her hands are busy spinning thread. Her fingers twist fibers. In other words, she's overseeing the affairs of her household. She's engaged even in the business realm. We can see that here. So in the Hebrew economy, a woman rose in her standing through the management of her household. In other words, she was a good care, caregiver of her family. Notice the, the, the expressions of diligence. She rises while it's still dark. She's involved in financial investments. She sets about her work vigorously. Now I want to just stop here and say this. like You know, some, some men don't get it. We don't realize that women have to continuously work. You see, like a guy goes to his work, he's finished, he comes home, he's done. But that's not the case with women. When you're caring for children and nurturing a household, it's just like you always got some, some meal to fix, you always have, you know, some clothes to get cleaned. How many notice your work is never done? 
The sooner do you clean it, it gets dirty. The sooner you pick up the house, the kids are dirtying it again. How many know what I'm talking about? And so I'm just pointing out to all of us guys, you know, once in a while it's good if we just pitched in. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It would be good if you helped your wife. And probably they're going to love you a lot more for doing that. You know, like whatever skill set you have. I used to cook, so, you know, a lot of times I'll just fix breakfast. I like fixing breakfast, and I do it. I'm quick at it, so I can do it. I just do it for her. And that, that's one way of saying, hey, I know how hard you're working here. I know that what you're doing, you know. Once in a while when she's not around, I even do laundry. And I do all kinds of stuff. I'm trying to help out, trying to pitch in. That's important as husbands. You know, you want to honor your wives? Help them out at times. Some of you are already doing it. And the rest of you, it's like newsflash. This is a good thing to do. <clears throat> I've been married 40 years. You want to keep being married? Just newsflash. Pitch in once in a while. It, your stock goes up. How many know what I'm talking about? Okay, let me move on to the second quality is her decorum. And what I mean by that is how she presents herself. And it's not just her outward look. It's, it's how she presents herself towards others with a caring heart. There's an expression of generosity. Look what it says in verse 20. She extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arms to the needy. I love what Carl Erskine, who is a famous major league pitcher during the 1950s, and actually they won two World Series. He, he said he grew up in that same era as the first story in the 1930s. And this is what he said about his mother. He said, I refuse to use the word poor because we weren't. Oh, yes, we did rent our house. We walked everywhere we went. We ate one-dish meals. Can I just explain for all the young people, go, why are you picking these stories? Because today, you know what we do? Instead of actually paying for things, we're all living on credit, and it's unhealthy. And so these people had to live in, within their means, and that's why you see this level of poverty. And so here they were, you know, but this is what you need to understand he said, we went from paycheck to paycheck, but our clothes were clean. There was a feeling of pride in making what we had to be more than enough. My mother had a large white bowl, and many of our one-dish meals were served from that large bowl. Often when we'd finished our meals, mom would fill the bowl with what was left on the pan, on the stove, dumpling, stew, soup, whatever it was, spread a cloth over the bowl, and she'd say, Carl, take this down to the Case family. They were like four doors down. And this father was doing his best to raise his six children at the loss and the death of his wife. And so this little extra was helping them along. This simple, caring attitude gave me a sense of appreciation for what we had and kept me from feeling sorry for what we didn't have. I mean, I think that's powerful. You see, what I'm trying to get across to us today is we have to shift the way we think. Many of us in this room are very unhappy because we're focusing on what we think we need to make life happy for us. And what I'm saying to you, that's not what makes you happy. What makes you happy is to value what God has already blessed you with and cherish what God has already given you. And you will be a far more content, far richer, far happier person, and all of a sudden you will look around and see beyond yourself to other people and you will begin to serve them, which is extremely wise. Let me move on to... Uh, it's interesting that the words poor and needy are also used in verse 9, which is just prior to this poem. And it's actually the words of a mother to her son, the king. Do you want to talk about having great influence? How many know that if your mother is going to talk to you, you're going to pay attention? And even the leaders have mothers. 
right? And this is what the mother was saying to her son. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Can I just say this about leadership? Leadership is about helping the people who cannot help themselves. Leaders are designed to serve other people. That's what real leadership is. And if you study the scriptures, that's the only model I see. And when the other, the only other model is an abusive form where the leader thinks that the people are there for them. That's an unhealthy form. That's an abusive form of leadership. Let me move on to the third quality is her devotion. It says in verse 25 that she is enriching her home both emotionally and materially. She's concerned about what tomorrow holds. Verse 29, she's clothed with strength and dignity and she laughs without fear of the future. You know, I was just at a conference in Vancouver here and, and we just heard Dr. Greg Mitchell share a very profound thought and I was, and I was just like, wow, this is so right on. He said the fundamental problem in our culture today is anxiety. And all the other issues are flowing from it. You know, we're addiction issues. We're, we're all anxious. We're all self-medicating. We're uh, doing all kinds of crazy things because we're so filled with anxiety. But you know what he said at the root of anxiety is? Is that we're fearful. And we don't trust God. And we don't believe God is going to take care of us. And we don't believe God's good. And so we take things into our own hands. And you know, we're not capable of trying to control the uncontrollable. And that's what the future is. It's uncontrollable. You and I cannot control what tomorrow holds. But wouldn't it be a lot better if we got a deeper confidence in the goodness of God and began to trust him as a loving heavenly father and stop sweating all the stuff we're sweating and just say, you know what, I can't control what's going to be brought my way. I can't control the circumstances and situations of life, but I can rest in the knowledge of the goodness and love of Almighty God. Do you believe that what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those that love God? Isn't it amazing that we can just stop sweating and stop being anxious? As a matter of fact, we're told not to be anxious, but rather in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. And what is the fruit of that submission of our anxieties to God? The peace of God that passes human understanding will guard our hearts. And he said, most of us are not operating out of peace, we're operating out of anxiety. And that's why there's so many relational difficulties and so many people dealing with emotional and physiological problems in their bodies. And this is the truth, folks. He was dead right on. I, I just love listening to that because I go, that's true. Let me just move on to the final quality here is her dedication. Now the writer gives her the ultimate comment. She is described as the wise woman. How many know that wisdom only comes from God? Listen to what it says in Proverbs 9.10. I'm quoting from the new NIV here. It says, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. You know, other translations say the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation. You know what? Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. How many here say, I've not always used good judgment? Anybody here willing to admit they've not always used good judgment? That's because we've lacked wisdom. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting in the book of James, which is really proverbial in nature, James says, if any man lacks wisdom, what, what should we do? If any person, I'll use that word, it's not just man, any person lacks wisdom, what should we do? Ask God. Ask God for wisdom. It is a gift. But beyond just asking God for wisdom, we can develop the skills that wisdom gives us. And one of the skills is making good choices in life, good judgments in life. Now, 
You know what the, probably the greatest need is in our culture today? And I'm going to just pick on the church. The greatest need in the church today is the fear of God. Because I see a lot of people, you know, we say, oh, I believe in God. But you say, what's the difference between believing in God and having the fear of God? When you have the fear of God, you're like Joseph who says, how can I commit this great sin? You see, when we have the fear of God, we don't rationalize away the Bible to do what we want to do, which I see a lot of people doing. Rather, the fear of God says, no, I'm so concerned about pleasing God, I'm going to do exactly what he says, regardless of the outcome and the consequences, and believe that God is going to see me through, instead of trusting in ourselves. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and then what? Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and what will happen? He's going to direct your paths. And do not be wise in your own eyes. (laughs) Isn't that what we try to do? We're trying to be smart, and then we make stupid decisions. Why don't we just say, okay, God, what does your word say about this? And I'm just going to do what you tell me. I'm going to obey you. That's the fear of the Lord. And so we see that this woman is filled with the fear of God. She has wisdom. And then we read in Proverbs 14 that the wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Isn't that sad? You know? And that's true of all of us, by the way. It's picking on women here, but I can pick on men. I see men doing the same thing. You know, wisdom builds up. Foolishness tears down. Do you know it takes very little skill to be foolish? I'll give you an example. You know, we had a new, we bought a home, our first home, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we got into this house, and it was a wreck, and so we had to do some work to just be livable, because that's all we could afford. We had a little money set aside to do some work, so I had some friends come over to help me, and we had to take apart this, you know, this fireplace area. It was terrible looking. It was awful, and they said, well, Rick, how do we do this? He goes, watch, and he took his hammer, and he just you know, pull, pull, drove it in through the wall and started pulling things out. I go, I, I think I can do that. And so I helped him rip that thing apart. How many know it takes no skill to tear things apart? No skill whatsoever. But now putting it back together again, there's a little more skill involved. How many know building things up requires more skill than it does to tear things apart? You know, I look at our culture today and I say, boy, we don't have a lot of wisdom. We don't have a lot of skill. We're just tearing things apart. Anybody can tear things apart. How about trying to put it back together again? That takes wisdom. And that's what he's talking about here. In these final verses, you know, we see uh, different elements of wisdom. But let me just move down here. I'm going to just skip a few because my time is running out. And just say this. Wisdom's true beauty. You know, how many know in our culture today, you know, I feel sorry for you girls because you keep being constantly bombarded with how you need to physically look. Isn't that true? Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that the pressure? Girls, is that the pressure? Yes, thank you. A few of you are with me. I, the rest of you are sleeping, but that's okay. <clears throat> if you need to sleep, that's good. Uh, but listen to what Proverbs says. Beauty is more than skin deep. Okay? But you know what's really sad? When you see somebody that's truly outwardly beautiful, but it's only skin deep. This is how Proverbs describes it. A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. How many go, that's a little incongruous? How many know that you probably don't put your gold finery on the nose of a pig? Right? You don't. So what am I saying? Listen, wisdom is, there's a beauty 
The, the beautiful women, they're beautiful from the inside out. It starts from the inside. You want to be truly beautiful? Work on the inside and let it come out. You know, and sometimes people may not, you know, I, I've met people who may not have been physically attractive, but they were absolutely beautiful. And you could sense it in their spirit. It's just coming from the inside. And you're attracted to people like this because it's not, it's not just external and superficial and self-centered. No, it's someone who is literally generous and kind and understanding. You know, it talks about this in Scripture. I'm talking about wisdom here. And you know what, guys, that's true for you as well. You know, we're, we're living in such a weird culture. We're so caught up with externals that we're totally missing the reality of what's enduring. If you want to have enduring relationships, you've got to get beautiful from the inside out. And that takes wisdom. So let's stand this today as we close the service. I want to close with a quote by a very famous writer. His name is Leo uh, Tolstoy. And he says this, uh, women who fulfill their vocation hold power even over powerful men. Such women mold public opinion and prepare future generations. And so it is they who hold the power to save people from all of our present and impending evils. Yes, women, mothers, in your hands, more than in any uh, uh, in, of those of anyone else, lies the salvation of the world. What is he saying? He's saying you're shaping people's lives. You see, I, I'm glad I chose the vocation. I'm glad God called me to be a pastor. Why? Because I get to shape people's lives. Now, it's a great privilege, but a great responsibility. I'm going to stand before God and have greater judgment than you have. Because everything I say, God's going to say, you said that. Did you do it? Woo. How many know? I can't just talk it. I got to do it. But I'm challenging you today to be people of wisdom. And I'm trying to show you that there's only two, there's only two trails. Wisdom, folly. Wisdom means I have to fear God. What does that really mean, Pastor? It means I'm living to please Him and Him alone. And when I am this wise woman or I'm this wise man, I'm going to influence people way beyond what I could have ever thought or dreamt. Do you realize that? Wisdom influences nations. Folly ruins them. Folly ruins homes. Folly ruins cities. It ruins nations. It ruins civilization. But wisdom, that's transformative. You're going to impact people's lives way beyond your life. And you're going to live a better life. You're going to build up rather than tear down. How many are here today saying, you know what? I want to walk in wisdom. I want to allow the fear of God to rule and reign in my life. I want to walk in wisdom. Let's open our hearts to that today. Just lift your hands and say, God, that's my desire. I want to walk in wisdom. I want to walk in the fear of the Lord. That's one of my deepest concerns as a pastor. I see too many Christians that are not fearing God. They're just doing their own thing. Folks, I beg of you, walk in wisdom. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk to honor Him. And you're going to see such amazing fruit come from that. But if you turn your back on that, all you have left is folly. And you will not make good decisions. You will not have good discretion.
you will make poor choices and you will suffer and others will suffer with you. But if you walk in wisdom, you will bring blessing and hope to many. So Lord, we open our hearts to you today. We thank you for our beautiful mothers. We thank you for these beautiful ladies who fear you, Lord, and who are building up your kingdom. They're building up their homes. They're building up their children. They're building up people's lives. And even if we can't biologically have children, we can bear spiritual children. And we can do the same thing in their lives, Lord. We can come alongside and we can be like a parent to them. And we can love them and cherish them and nurture their souls and develop them and, and challenge them and inspire them and motivate them, Lord, so that their lives in turn will be a blessing to others. We can create an amazing, powerful chain reaction. Lord, I pray, help us. We cannot do this in our own strength. We need your grace. And so we cry out to you, Father, hear our cry, bring grace into our soul, cause our hearts to be in tune to your spirit, and may truly your, the fear of your name, the fear of who you are, the fear of doing what is right in your sight, be truly etched in our souls, in the heart of our hearts, in the, in the very essence of our being, so that we can walk humbly before you, and we can do what is right in your eyes, and have an amazing impact and people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.